we keep finding ourselves covering suppressed exculpatory evidence intentionally hidden from the defense and jury by Sergeant Byrd. If he couldn't hide it, he helped Powell pressure witnesses and experts to lie about it, and then ordered it destroyed five short months after Oscar was sent to death row. Donahue had many, many notes about the fact that Byrd specifically directed which tire and footprints were photographed and compared and which were ignored. Donahue clearly recognized and noted that everything that pointed away from Oscar was hidden by Byrd, and that it was intentional, systematic, and dishonest. Byrd directed Hensley regarding photos. Experts unable to identify tires and shoe print because of lack of individual characteristics. Again, picked certain tire tracks, footprints, and ignored others. Sergeant Byrd told him which photos to take, guessed which should be photographed. Hensley, seven footprints were body found. Only one was attempted to be identified. Nearest tire mark documented was three feet from Donna Joe. Renteria drove spray rig within a foot of the body. Other tires, other shoe, or boot marks. There are several terms that generally apply to an investigation like this. Suspect-based, tunnel vision, and anchor traps, for instance. However, all of those assume that law enforcement was acting in good faith, but the investigation took an unfortunate wrong turn. That's what we believed when we first looked at this case and started the podcast. However, it's clear that this was a bad faith investigation led by Byrd. It's documented everywhere. It's not speculation or a theory. It's plain and simple fact. Another piece of buried exculpatory evidence is the fingerprints found on the glove box and passenger wing window of Oscar's truck. They didn't match the Cliftons, Carter, or Donna. Donahue made a note asking if those prints had been run through the FBI or the CII databases looking for a match. That's a question we've often wondered too. There's no answer in Petty John's reports, and the question was never asked at trial. It's frustrating to see Donahue raise an issue in his notes, never get an answer, and just let it go. The jury should have heard TCSO explain what steps they took to identify those prints. Donahue should have made sure that the jury understood that the prints could have been left by Donna's killer when he took the invoice book from Oscar's truck. Again, those prints pointed to the presence of a stranger and supported Oscar's innocence. Could those prints belong to Donna's killer? We'll never know because Byrd ordered the fingerprint cards destroyed in 1977. In episode 36, we mentioned the July 1975 State Crime Lab examination of Oscar's blue slacks. However, we never really focused on exactly what happened to cause that evidence testing at the very end of the trial. The answer, of course, is another TCSO attempt to hide exculpatory evidence. Donahue's notes on the blue pants made us look at Grubb's testimony again. While Grubb was on the stand, Donahue asked him about the results of his analysis of the blue pants that Oscar had been wearing on the day of Donna's homicide. Donahue. All right, now, items 80, a pair of blue trousers, Mr. Clifton. A blue shirt, Mr. Clifton, 82. Well, let's just take items 80 and 81. Did you make any examination of those items? Grubb. No, I did not. Was there any reason that you didn't examine those items? I was... I received a telephone call from Sergeant Hensley of the Sheriff's Office. 
and he informed me that the suspect had been wearing... Powell, objection as to what he said would be hearsay. The court sustained... First of all, Grubb's testimony was not barred by the rule against hearsay because it wasn't being offered to prove the truth of the statement and Hensley was a witness at the trial. Grubb was simply explaining his state of mind and the information he had when he decided not to test the pants. Second, there was no reason for Donahue to move on there. He just needed to restate the question in a way that allowed Grubb to explain without quoting Hensley. Third, this is the exact same interrupting trick that Powell pulled when Donahue asked Morton why he hadn't examined or tested Donna's green pants. And when Donahue asked Blake about blood typing of the sample from Donna's pubic hair. Although the jury never got to hear what Hensley had to say, after Grubb's testimony, the judge ordered Oscar's pants sent to the state crime lab in Fresno where they were analyzed. The pants had no blood or other evidence on them, and the results came back on July 6, 1976, the same day the defense started presenting their case at trial. For some totally inexplicable reason, Donahue did not call anyone from the state crime lab to testify about the lack of evidence on the pants, so the jury never heard those results. However, Donahue did address Hensley's strange phone call to Grubb during his closing arguments. Among the other items... When Mr. Grubb got on the stand and I asked him if he'd tested, and in the list we sent up, they sent up, I think there were two pair of blue pants, and yet Grubb testified that Hensley calls him and tells him, never mind, don't analyze the pants. Well, now, I don't know. What are we trying to do here? Did Hensley know that there wasn't any blood on those pants? So far as the evidence here is concerned, Hensley didn't do anything more with those pants than put them in a paper bag and see that they got to Oakland. Hensley's the fingerprint man. Well, why wouldn't they do this? They're afraid that that might help Clifton if they found out, okay, these were the pants he was wearing that day and there isn't, any, there isn't anything from the little girl on those pants. What kind of an investigation is this to include but never exclude. Is that the purpose of it? So, it's clear that Donahue understood exactly what was going on with TCSO, DA Powell, and their suppression of exculpatory evidence. Why didn't he make sure the jury heard from the crime lab that the pants had no evidence? Why didn't he confront Hensley on the stand and ask him why he called and told Grubb not to examine Oscar's pants? Why didn't Donahue also have Donna's green pants examined by the crime lab? None of it makes any sense. While we're on the topic of Oscar's pants, Donahue had an interesting note on the white painter's pants. We found a line that says, Painter's pants regarding all clothing seized. And he underlined the word seized. It appears to be a note to himself to go back through all of the items booked into evidence to see if the painter's pants had been logged into TCSO custody. Based on his closing statement, it's clear that Donahue never figured out that TCSO had the painter's pants. Mr. Donahue. Some allusion has been made here to some white pants that he used for painting, I believe. Well, I don't know anything about any white pants being involved in this case. 
Although the pants were photographed in TCSO custody, Powell never introduced that photo as an exhibit during the trial, and Oscar didn't see it until he was already on death row. As we've covered in detail before, TCSO Johnson did not log the pants into evidence, include them in his report on processing the truck, or speak up during the trial when Powell accused Oscar of wearing them during the homicide and disposing of them. This is the very last thing the jury heard from Oscar. Powell. Mr. Clifton, those white painter's pants that you can take off and then throw away, are those the ones you were wearing the day you killed Donna Jo Richmond? Clifton. Sir, I stated I did not do what you've claimed. I had nothing to do with it. No further questions. Mr. Donahue. That's all, Mr. Clifton. The court. You may step down. The location and condition of Oscar's painter's pants was intentionally withheld from Donahue and the defense. It was exculpatory evidence, and it was suppressed. Powell's question, comments during closing arguments were grotesque prosecutorial misconduct. It's impossible to overstate the impact this had on the jury. It was the state's full explanation for the lack of forensic evidence on Oscar's clothing. It gave the jurors a way to explain away the unexplainable. Equally harmful was Ed Blake's unchallenged and unscientific opinion testimony. Donahue's notes on the question of sexual assault and semen paint a clear picture of someone who was in way over his head and needed expert help. He thought he had the issue covered, and then it fell apart in front of him. His notes on the testimony of Dr. Miller and Grubb are clear. Quote, no evidence of assault or penetration, negative for spermatozoa, and no report of semen. He thought that was the end of the matter, until Ed Blake took the stand. Donahue noted that Blake was just a graduate student, and then he wrote, quote, Extract uninformative regard to type of the semen. Donahue simply did not understand that Grubb had done ABO typing on Blake's sample, and that Oscar was excluded. Donahue's own words at closing were catastrophic to Oscar's defense. Mr. Donahue. Mr. Blake said there was human semen in the pubic hair that they removed from Donna but they did not type it. And so, again, they could not tell you whose it could be. I assume it could be from any male, since we have no way of knowing. We will never understand why Donahue did not have any of the evidence tested by his own defense expert, especially since Oscar and his family paid for it. Any experienced forensic expert could have and would have easily debunked Blake's junk science. Although D.A. Ward lied in his report about the ABO testing that excluded Oscar from Blake's sample, he quickly shifted his story when ABC 10 confronted him with the documents. Ward and ADA Alavesos then tried to claim that it was impossible to identify a mixed sample of type A and O, or that Grubb's testing had been inconclusive. Those are just more lies. Lies about the science of blood typing, lies about the finding in Grubb's handwritten lab notes, and lies about Grubb's clear testimony at grand jury. Donahue's closing statement to the jury was wrong. If Blake's sample really did contain semen, it could not have been deposited by anyone with blood type B, AB, or O. Not only was Oscar excluded, but Grubb, Morton, Blake, and Powell all knew that, for certain.
Donahue was also blindsided by Morton's testimony regarding the blonde hair found on Oscar's sweater. Donahue's notes say hair on sweater, quote, could have been Donna's. That's it, nothing more. Although we feel that Morton gave some very non-expert opinion testimony about the tire and shoe prints, he was always careful to make it clear that at most he was leaving open the possibility that the tires and heel print matched Oscar, not concluding that they were a match. Everything was qualified with could and may. That would have been fine for the sweater hair if all that Morton had done was his initial microscopic analysis. However, as Oscar learned in 2001, Morton knew for certain that the blonde hair did not and could not have come from Donna. Phone records show that during the trial, Morton contacted Richard Bisbing, the most respected expert on ABO typing of hair in 1976. From Bisbing, Morton obtained the specific instructions and directions for determining the hair's blood type. Bisbing also advised Morton on the admissibility of the science in court and how to overcome any defense challenges. Morton ran the test on the blonde hair from Oscar's sweater three times. It was Oscar's own type O all three times, not Donna's A. Morton turned over this exculpatory evidence to Powell, and Powell did not give it to Donahue. That's hardly surprising, but we're still shocked that Morton went so far as to lie about it under oath on the witness stand. He had made all of the preparations for admitting the testing into evidence and was prepared to fight the defense if they objected, until the results were exculpatory and failed to establish a connection between Donna and Oscar. Again, this is a clear Brady violation, and on its own, grounds to overturn Oscar's conviction. It's also part of the pattern of bad-faith suppression of exculpatory evidence started by Byrd and Powell and continued today by Ward and Alavezos. It wasn't just exculpatory physical evidence that was suppressed by Byrd and Powell. They also hid critical information about some of their star witnesses. We found two notes that seemed to confirm what we've always suspected. Donahue never had any idea that Gloria Moscoro and her entire family worked for Donna's grandparents. We can see a note, underlined, written during Don Richmond's testimony that says, grandparents lived near. That was new information that had never come up prior to trial. Clearly, if Petty John had done his job properly, Donahue would have known that the Mascoros had been picking oranges for Donna's grandparents. They were the ranch owners at the corner of List and Spruce. We also found Donahue's hand-drawn diagram of the area between Spruce and Cahuilla. It shows where Gloria was working and the Richmond house but the grandparents' house and name are missing. We can see that Donahue made several references in his notes to Bird having a close personal relationship with the Richmonds, but nothing about the fact that Bird was the ranch manager for Donna's grandparents in the 1960s. The jury should have heard that the Moscoros were Richmond family employees, not disinterested witnesses, and that Bird had managed that very same ranch. Did Bird ever supervise the Moscoros on that ranch? Donahue and the jury should have known the answer when they were weighing the credibility of the Musgrove's testimony. This would have not only raised serious questions about the photo of Sheriff Wiley pressuring Gloria to say that he saw Oscar, but also about other holes in Gloria's story. If there had really been a flasher targeting young women on the ranch, why didn't the Musgrove's report it? Why didn't they tell the ranch manager or Donna's grandparents about the dangerous man lurking in the orange trees next to their house? 
Donahue also wondered about the lack of footprints and noted to himself, No photos of any prints in the grove where Glory was located. Yet someone walked several rows of trees to expose himself? None of these points were ever made to the jury. They had no idea that the Muscoros may have been pressured to go along with a story that Bird made up, simply to keep their jobs. Speaking of bird stories, Donahue had almost nothing about Laverne Lamb in his notes. No more than just the time and the lack of blood on Donna's pants. He had no note about the pants being washed. Donahue never suspected that Lamb was anything but an ordinary citizen that just happened to find the pants. He did not question anything about her as a witness or her story. More importantly, there is no mention in the notes about Bird's delay, turning the pants into the evidence room, or the fact that they were never submitted for lab analysis. Given Donahue's reaction to Hensley calling Grubb to stop the examination of Oscar's blue pants, we feel it safe to say that Donahue never realized how Bird had manipulated Donna's pants to keep them away from Morton's lab. Donahue might have noticed if he'd read the dates on the evidence bag. There's no indication that ever happened. Although Donahue seemed to take Lamb at face value, he was highly suspicious of Don Lee's story. One line in his notes is quite pointed. It says, 345. Donna Jo supposedly left Don Lee's home. When Donahue wrote that towards the end of the trial, he did not believe something about Don's story. He never conveyed that suspicion in the courtroom, only to himself. We can't tell from that phrase if Donahue doubted the time or that Donna rode away from Don Lee's house at all. Donahue also had a note about Don offering Donna a ride home in the, quote, James Scroggin Ford Pinto. So he may have wondered if that was the real story about how Donna left the Lee residence. If Donahue harbored serious doubts about Don's testimony, imagine what he would have thought if he had known the truth about Laverne Lamb. We can't understand why Donahue and Pettyjohn never investigated the witnesses or got the full story of who was at the Lee property and their alibis. Another note that's particularly annoying just says, Ski Hat. At some point, Donahue was interested in the ski mask found at Neal Ranch, but he never followed up on it. At trial, Bird said it wasn't related to the case, and that was the end of it. No explanation given. Morton said that it was examined for hairs and fibers, but that nothing was found that was, quote, worth pursuing. Donahue had no idea that there were three hairs removed. They were compared to Oscar's hair, and he was excluded. It was more suppressed exculpatory evidence that may have pointed to Donna's real killer. This raises two questions. Why didn't Pettyjohn or Donahue ever wonder if the ski mask was related to the masked man who kidnapped Bess Snelling and shot at Agent McGowan? And why didn't Donahue argue that it pointed to Donna being abducted by a masked stranger on Marinette? Both Donahue and Pettyjohn lived in Visalia. By December 1975, they had each experienced three VR burglaries within half a block of their homes. Presumably, they also read the Times Delta. The Snelling kidnapping and homicide was front-page news from September through December 1975. In addition to that, Jennifer Armour's homicide anniversary was on the front page in November and the McGowan shooting and suspect composite in December. 
Hetty John was a retired FBI agent and private investigator. Really? How is it possible that he never suspected that Beth, Jennifer, the Kawea stalking victim, and Donna were related crimes? There is not one word about those cases and no investigation by Oscar's defense. Oscar had been working in Visalia and made several stops in town. Maybe the VR just took the invoice book from the unlocked truck while he was parked at Kmart or the post office or the hardware store that day. If nothing else, Donahue could have used the VR to raise reasonable doubt. Okay, wait. Talking about this made us remember a reason. Ray Donahue's son, Tim, was on Sergeant Vaughn's VR suspect list, dated November 20th, 1975. Vaughn's report notes that Tim's fingerprints were, quote, to be sent to the lab. So clearly Tim knew that VPD were looking at him. Obviously, Oscar was not aware of any of that when he hired Ray Donahue to defend him a month later. And yes, that is the same Tim Donahue that gave TCSO Deathridge secret access to the defense file before the True Blood hearing and then verified the forged Petty John invoice. Without Tim's actions, Oscar would easily have won his appeal on True Blood and Gerber in 1981. Would that have reopened the investigation into Donna's murder? With Oscar cleared, would VPD have tried to link the case back to the VR? This is why conflicts of interest and lies can never be justified. We should not have to ask if the Donahues and Pettyjohn intentionally harmed Oscar's defense in a misguided attempt to protect Tim. But here we are. That all brings us to one last trial note from Donahue. He wrote it down while Powell was cross-examining Oscar on the witness stand. It says, Blonde-haired kid on bike, 11 to 12. That was written in response to this exchange. Powell, now, Mr. Clifton, when you went back to Garden Street, as you say you did, you were there for a couple minutes. You saw a kid, a blonde-haired kid on a bike, didn't you? Clifton, yes, I did. And you have identified that kid, haven't you? Yes, I did. And what is his name? That I don't know. How did you identify him? Did you see a picture of him? No, sir. I've never seen him other than I told Mr. Pettyjohn and Mr. Donahue. I described what the kid looked like. Okay, and what did the kid look like? Blonde-headed. I'd estimate from 11, 12, 13 years old, somewhere in that area. He was right in front of my pickup. Pell seemed to realize that he'd made a mistake and dropped it right there. So, just to be clear, Powell's question came totally out of the blue. Oscar and Donahue had made a conscious decision not to mention the boy to the jury on direct examination because Pettyjohn told them that he had been unable to locate the boy and verify his status as an eyewitness. Presumably, that's the reason that Donahue didn't ask Oscar more about the boy during his redirect examination. However, we know that TCSO Chamberlain had identified and interviewed the boy, Johnny Gerber, on June 22nd, about two weeks before Oscar took the stand. On the night of June 21st, Bird interviewed Frank Thomas, and he indicated that Brent Trueblood had been present in his driveway during the freezer loading. The next morning, Chamberlain interviewed Trueblood. If you go back to Trueblood's statement, there's a brief moment where he tries to tell Chamberlain about a friend who may have spoken to Oscar, but Chamberlain cuts him off on the tape. In fact, the friend was Johnny Gerber. 
and Chamberlain interviewed him later that same day. Chamberlain prepared a nine-page report dated June 25, 1976. It appears that Donahue didn't notice the page numbers or the fact that he did not receive pages one through six of that report. The last three pages that Donahue was given by the DA covered the stories of the freezer loading guys, the wife, and the hospital records, and started on June 23rd. After the True Blood tape was discovered in 1981, it became clear that the first six pages of the report covered Chamberlain's interviews with True Blood and Gerber on the 22nd, but someone had destroyed those pages before they were turned over to the defense. One guess who signed that report? Yep, Sergeant Bob Bird. Obviously, he showed them to Powell, and they likely played both the True Blood and Gerber interview tapes for him. How else would Powell know about the blonde-haired boy on a bike? He didn't hear about him from Oscar or Donahue. As we outlined in way too much detail in episode 31, we don't believe that Donahue or Petty John knew that TCSO had located True Blood and Gerber during the trial. Although Tim Donahue produced an invoice from Petty John during the 1981 appeal hearing that seemed to show otherwise. Everyone listed on that invoice swore under oath, including intense direct judicial questioning, that they had never met or been interviewed by Petty John. Additionally, Petty John did not produce a copy of the invoice from his own file and refused to say under oath that he had ever met the boys. Bird, Chamberlain, and Powell hid the eyewitnesses during the trial, and Tim Donahue and TCSO Deathridge helped them cover it up. The motive was simple. By the time the hearing came around in 1981, all of the evidence in the case had been gone for four years. If Oscar won his appeal on the suppression of Gerber and Trueblood, the judge would have overturned his conviction and ordered a new trial. Only TCSO and the DA's office knew that the evidence was gone and a new trial was impossible. Tim Donahue worked for the DA. Not only would Oscar have walked free forever, but TCSO, Bird, Johnson, and everyone else involved in the destruction of the evidence would have been fired and criminally charged. We know that Tim Donahue violated his oath as an attorney and client confidentiality. That was established in open court. His duty was to Oscar not to the DA's office. Of course, Tim never would have been involved in the appeal if Ray hadn't died six hours before the start of the originally scheduled hearing. Let's be honest, Ray Donahue's death is incredibly suspicious. In fact, Oscar believed that Ray had been murdered, and we probably don't need to tell you who he suspected. At first, when it appeared to us that Donahue knew about Gerber and Trueblood, Oscar's theory made no sense. Why would anyone kill Donahue if his testimony was going to help the DA's case, ruin Oscar's appeal, and ensure that he stayed in prison? However, now there appears to be part of Oscar's idea that makes sense. Immediately prior to Donahue's death, he had attended the annual County Bar Association dinner at the Tulare Golf Club. Presumably, most of the local attorneys were at that event. We know that Donahue spoke with Superior Court Judge Ballantyne and spent time chatting with people at different tables. He said that his son, Tim, was getting ready to leave the DA's office and join his firm. 
nobody described seeing any outward signs of distress. So what happened at the dinner to make him drive 40 minutes southwest, past endless cotton fields, instead of to his home, 22 minutes due north, straight through the cities of Tulare and Visalia? As we've said before, there is no way that it was a wrong turn or mistake. We've tried to come up with any logical explanation for Donahue driving to that location. He had to pass the prison in Corcoran, so we checked to see if Oscar was housed there pending his hearing. But no, the prison wasn't open yet, and Oscar was in the county jail in Visalia. Could Donahue have been meeting a friend? Well, there are no homes, restaurants, or bars in that area. If he drove there alone to meet someone in a secluded spot along the canal after midnight, we have a lot of other questions. We've read three different descriptions, and they all say that Donahue's car hit the south bank of the canal after driving straight at a hairpin turn in the road. Although the newspaper report stated that the car flew 60 feet across the canal, the distance is more like 100 feet. The physics of the crash, as described, are impossible. Accident consultants we've shown this to say that Donahue's car could not have reached the south bank of the canal. It's not like there is a stunt ramp there. It's totally flat. Donahue's car ended up on the property of the Boswell Company, and a passerby notified Boswell Security, who then called the Kings County Sheriff. We've never seen photos of the accident scene, so we don't know the condition of the car, or exactly how it was positioned. We have two different descriptions from the Kings County Coroner's Office. Coroner Moore said that Donahue's body showed, quote, no obvious external injuries. But later, the office's spokesman said there were visible chest injuries. Donahue's death certificate doesn't really help. His cause of death is listed as multiple injuries due to trauma, with no further details. His body was cremated, there was no coroner's inquiry, and the manner of death was listed as accidental. End of story. Do we believe it was an accident? No. The newspaper stories were specific. Nobody knew why Donahue was there or where he may have been going. And we've never heard a believable story. The obvious explanation is that Donahue committed suicide. Perhaps that was the only way he could see to avoid testifying at Oscar's appeal hearing later that morning. Until we dug in and did the work on episode 31, we always assumed that Donahue would have supported Powell and said that he had been told about Gerber and Trueblood during the trial. However, Pettyjohn refused to confirm that under oath. He only raised the possibility that maybe he had known about the boys. He couldn't remember. Not only did Pettyjohn fail to support that idea with interview notes, signed statements, or a report, both Gerber's mother and Brent Trueblood swore in court that they never met or spoke to Pettyjohn. Even more telling is the supposed reason that Donahue would not have called Gerber and Trueblood, that the boys didn't have any information that was helpful to Oscar's defense. That could not be more false. Go back and reread or listen to Trueblood's statement. He was certain that he saw Oscar during the freezer loading, not at another time or day, and that detail was confirmed by Frank Thomas. Trueblood not only described Oscar in his truck, he knew the extremely unique way the truck was parked, which matched the scene drawings the defense had made months earlier. 
He also described Oscar going back and forth, loading the stove parts into the truck bed, which can be seen in the impound photos. Most importantly, Bill Rose's sworn statements are clear. Nobody else was hired to work on his property in December 1975. If Trueblood saw any workman or truck, it had to be Oscar. There is absolutely no way that Donahue would have failed to call Trueblood if he were given a transcript of that interview. However, Donahue didn't know about Trueblood at the time of his death. The hearing that morning was about the suppression of Johnny Gerber's testimony. As we've said, the pages of TCSO Chamberlain's report that detailed his interviews with Gerber and Trueblood were not turned over to the defense and appear to have been destroyed by Byrd. Chamberlain admitted at the appeal hearing that no transcripts of those interviews were typed up during the trial. He said he gave everything to Byrd. The Trueblood interview tape was found in 1981 by a TCSO clerk acting on a court order to search for the Gerber interview. It was in a box of stuff cleaned out of an old filing cabinet in Byrd's office. So there was no way to prove what Gerber had told Chamberlain. The report was destroyed, the interview was never transcribed, and that tape had disappeared. All that was available by the hearing was the memory of Gerber's mother, who had heard the interview at the time. She claimed that Johnny said he'd spoken to Oscar by his truck while the freezer and bikes were being loaded across the street. That's consistent with Trueblood's statement to Chamberlain, where he said he thought his friend may have spoken to the man working across the street. Gerber's mother and aunt were also emphatic. They had brought Johnny to the courthouse to testify, but someone in authority told them they weren't needed and sent them home. Again, there is nothing about that story that says that Johnny would not have been helpful to the defense. Donahue was desperate for any alibi witness. Powell's constant refrain was that nobody saw Oscar, and that made his entire alibi a lie. If Donahue had known about Gerber and Trueblood, and their stories were critical to Oscar's alibi and defense, what other reason would he have had for not calling them? The only answer we can imagine is that he wanted Oscar to be convicted. That would mean that Donahue knew that Oscar's alibi was true and that he was actually innocent. We can't explain a lot of Donahue's behavior, but it's clear that he was in way over his head. The case was complex and required a lot of defense investigation and evidence testing that just didn't happen. Donahue lost track of details and didn't follow up on new information that appeared during the trial. After going back through his notes, we've realized that he only caught about half of Bird and Powell's lies and missing exculpatory evidence. None of that says that Donahue was willing to participate in sending an innocent man to death row. However, Oscar had a nagging doubt and he raised it in a letter to Donahue on July 18, 1977. Please send me a copy of the letter from Exeter, the one to your wife, that you gave Wiley, and they gave me, and I gave to you. Donahue replied on July 27, 1977. Dear Oscar, I've checked my file for a copy of the letter Mrs. Donahue received, but apparently I did not keep a copy, for I cannot find one. With kind regards, I remain yours very truly, Ray W. Donahue. It's not clear why a letter to Mrs. Donahue was delivered to Oscar in jail, but we're guessing that Bird was behind it. We know that the letter was threatening and scared Mrs. Donahue, and Ray turned it over to Sheriff Wiley for investigation. Obviously, someone from within TCSO wanted to make sure that Oscar saw it. 
When Oscar asked Ray Donahue about it during a visit, Donahue took Oscar's only copy. So we've never read the letter. This type of threat might seem like a minor point and something that defense attorneys dismiss, but Ray Donahue didn't usually handle murder cases. In fact, he was only associated with one other high-profile criminal defense, and that case may have amplified his fears of the threatening letter to his wife. From the Tulare Advance Register, Tuesday, January 15, 1963. Morbid thrill-seekers packed murder trial court daily. A veteran reporter looked at the packed courtroom. They're the type who go to funerals for entertainment or to automobile races hoping to see a wreck, he remarked. It was Friday, the 21st day of one of the most sensational murder trials in the history of Tulare County. And for the 21st day, the courtroom was filled with the curious, the thrill-seekers, the hangmen. But the thing that made Friday different from any other day was that the people weren't there just to see and hear. They were maintaining a death watch. Because Friday, a jury of seven men and five women went out to determine the fate of convicted killers Ronald Polk and George Gregg for the brutal mutilation slain of a 20-year-old Norwalk sailor, William Fambro. The spectators, however, didn't go out. They stayed through the afternoon, through the dinner hour, and into the night waiting to see Polk and Greg, both 23, to find out if they would live or die. And after the jury returned its verdict, death in the gas chamber at San Quentin, even then they weren't satisfied. They pushed against a door at the end of the corridor to get a last glimpse of the condemned men. A father lifted his son onto his shoulder so the child could get a better look. You could sell him tickets to the execution, said another reporter, and even then, it probably wouldn't get enough excitement for them. How morbid can you get? But it was the same for the entire 21 days. People from all walks of life were at one time or another, many of them day in and day out, retired pensioners, high school students on Christmas vacation, businessmen, secretaries, housewives. Someone has said every citizen should see at least part of one jury trial in his lifetime. If that's so, Tulare County has citizens who qualify 21 times over. Elevators ran overtime, and Charlie Whitson, who operates a coffee shop on the courthouse's ground floor, said business has never been so good. But Whitson didn't get all the business. Some of the onlookers wouldn't even leave the area of the courtroom at the noon break for fear of losing their ringside seats. It was better than Perry Mason, the Defenders, and Sam Benedict all rolled into one. So they hung around and made work for the janitors, tossing cigarettes and candy wrappers here and there. There was some joking among reporters that maybe they should get tickets printed and sell them at the door. I'd like to have the popcorn and coke concession, cracked Special Deputy Don Gibson, Tipton. Ironically, there were no outbursts, at least in the courtroom. One man accosted Ray Donahue, attorney for Greg, in the hall one afternoon and remarked, What in the hell do you mean representing those damn N-words, mister? Reporters were repeatedly asked, When are they going to hang them? Or, Where is that trial? They didn't have to say which trial. Everybody knew which one they meant. And although the lynchers were there, they managed to control themselves. 
deputies stationed at strategic locations in the courtroom helped them to remember restraint. If you had taken a poll among them at any time during the trial, you could have gotten a conviction with or without evidence. The defense attorneys were subjected to much harsh criticism, which prompted Judge John Locke to remark, Unpopular causes arouse great public indignation. The uninformed tend to identify the attorney with his client or the crime allegedly perpetrated by the client. Thoughtless people tend to say the persons charged with such crimes should be hanged forthwith. The greatest danger to our American system lies in the unthinking clamor for the hanging tree and the lynch law. Yet, were their liberty in jeopardy, these overzealous persons would be the first to demand each and all of their constitutional rights. And what did the two defendants think of it all? I thought we got a fair trial, Greg told reporters yesterday during an interview in his jail cell before being transported to death row in San Quentin. Mr. Donahue worked real hard for me. It's not his fault. I've been treated okay here. He said he wasn't too surprised when the jury sentenced him to death. I know that's the way Mr. Ballantyne, District Attorney Jay Ballantyne, wanted it. Polk, unlike Greg, feels he did not get a fair trial. My past record influenced them, the jurors, he said. The ex-Kentuckian said he thought Ballantyne, quote, went out of his way to stick me, but that his attorney, Nat Bradley, did, quote, all he could. Reporters who'd covered the trial from the beginning and court attaches were surprised when the jury returned with its verdict of death for Greg. They had felt that Polk was a leading candidate for the gas chamber, but that Greg actually had not taken an active part in the killing and probably would be sentenced only to life imprisonment. Both defendants, who broke down earlier in the week when found guilty of first-degree murder, remained relatively calm when told they must die for their crime. But some hardened court veterans admitted that they, quote, got a queasy feeling in the stomach. The spectacle is over. May there never be another one. It's important to note that the co-defendant's attorney in that case, Nat Bradley, was the judge at Oscar's trial. So we know that Donahue's family had received at least one direct threat, and he and Bradley had firsthand experience with mob justice. The community was rightly outraged by Donna's murder, and the newspapers had publicly convicted Oscar of crimes that weren't even committed within days of the murder. How much did fear sneak into Donahue and Bradley's decisions during the trial? We know it had to have an impact on them. Donahue's last notes were written in preparation for his closing arguments, and they say a lot about his mindset. Books at scene. String of clothing like someone drawing a map. So stupid when considered that nothing about Clifton. Clothes, truck. Indicate that he struggled with anyone. No blood, no fibers, no tissue, no hair, no semen. Time and distances involved. Reasonable doubt. Other prints. Notepad. Third person. No prints on bicycle. Wow. That would have been a great outline for an opening argument and some exhibits that explain the location and time problems. Reading that, it feels like Donahue understood the important issues and should have been able to offer a strong defense. If he hadn't known for sure that Oscar was innocent, he would have been certain if he'd heard the True Blood and Gerber interviews. We just don't believe that ever happened. We think Donahue's first statement to Oscar and his appeals attorneys was the truth. Neither Powell nor Byrd told him about finding the boys during the trial.
If all of the evidence shows that Donahue did not know about the suppressed alibi witnesses, why would he have killed himself to avoid testifying at the appeal hearing? The case for that looks a lot weaker since he would have been totally blameless. Petty John would have been seen as a pretty terrible private investigator, but he was no longer working after suffering a major health setback. TCSO Chamberlain and Byrd could have pointed the finger at Powell and simply said that they did their job by passing it on to the prosecutor. Sheriff Wiley would have protected them. The only one really hanging out was Powell, and by 1981, he was no longer the DA. Why wouldn't Donahue just march into court, tell the truth, and let the judge decide whether or not Oscar should get a new trial? We've really come back around to the place where suicide and Oscar's murder theory meet. Did someone threaten Donahue to keep him from testifying at the hearing? This is a real muddle for us because we don't know exactly how much Donahue knew at the time of his death. All we can document is Gerber. Did anyone from TCSO, the DA's office, or Powell tell Donahue about True Blood? Did Donahue know that Bird had destroyed the evidence and a retrial was impossible? Did he know that Bird and Johnson would have been looking at possible criminal charges for the destruction? Should we consider that Tim Donahue was working for the DA's office and had been a VR suspect? What threat could have been held over Ray Donahue's head? Could there have been past wrongdoing by Tim or Ray that someone threatened to expose? Could any attorney in Tulare County expect to maintain a law practice if TCSO and the DA's office were both out to get him? Did Donahue fear the community backlash if he helped Oscar get a new trial, or he went free? Do any of these threats seem like enough to motivate suicide? Sure, especially to someone who'd been drinking and was making decisions late at night. The situation easily could have felt magnified, as if there was no good path forward. This makes more sense if Donahue knew that the evidence was gone. His truthful testimony would have ruined several careers and caused the biggest criminal justice scandal in Tulare County history. However, it also would have been incredibly risky to lie and say that he knew about the witnesses but never told Oscar. That would have opened up claims of ineffective assistance of counsel, a civil malpractice lawsuit, and possible perjury charges. If telling the truth and lying both seemed like impossible choices, suicide isn't a reach. The fact that Donahue had been at the bar meeting, speaking with judges, the current DA, and possibly Powell increases the likelihood that he either learned new information or was threatened with retaliation. If Donahue did kill himself, why did he drive so far into that location to crash his car? There are plenty of other, closer places to drive into a canal at high speed. We're unaware of any connection between Donahue and that area. The only thing that strikes us is the fact that it's just inside Kings County. Is it possible that Donahue did not want the crash investigated by TCSO? Did he leave a note relating to Oscar's case? We're really at a loss to imagine any other reason to drive to that specific spot. So what about Oscar's belief that Donahue had been killed to keep him from testifying at the hearing that morning? If you aren't in the mood for a whole bunch of wild speculation, this is a good spot to turn off this episode. The spokesman said Donahue was traveling south on 10th Avenue, which has some bad curves, and comes to a dead end at Tucson Avenue. Donahue apparently failed to turn east onto Tucson. 
Instead, he kept going straight, and his vehicle was airborne about 60 feet before hitting the south side of the canal bank. In the past, we completely dismissed the idea of murder. But since there were several people with strong motives, we've been kicking it around. We can only speculate about what we know, and we assume the truth is a lot worse than what we've been able to prove. However, we know for a fact that there were three TCSO officers who'd committed a crime when they destroyed the evidence. TCSO Bird, Johnson, and Lovett. That was a misdemeanor punishable by a year in jail. A conviction would have ended their careers in law enforcement and called into question every single criminal case they worked. In fact, it still should. Neither Bird nor Johnson should be receiving their pension, and there should be DOJ reviews of all cases where either of them touched the physical evidence. What we don't know is how far the conspiracy to destroy the evidence ran. Did any of Bird's superiors know of or order the destruction? What about D.A. Powell, A.D.A. Blyer, or another prosecutor? We can't say because their names are not on the written evidence. There's never been any formal or informal inquiry into the destruction. So we're going to put people who would have faced jail time in the strong motive category. They definitely did not want Donahue to testify that he had not heard or read the Gerber interview during the trial. We would have to place Powell and Blyer next. Suppressing Gerber, an exculpatory witness, from the defense was a Brady violation and clear prosecutorial misconduct. They could have faced discipline from the bar and loss of their legal careers. The only other person we can see with a strong motive is the person who killed Donna. The local newspapers covered the upcoming hearing about a week before Donahue's death, so the real killer could have realized the threat. Obviously, if you committed murder and someone else got convicted, you would want to make sure that he stayed in prison. We also have to consider the fact that a lot had changed since the original trial. In early 1977, the Celia PD had realized that the VR had moved to Sacramento in the summer of 1976, were still aggressively and publicly looking for that person. If Oscar's conviction had been overturned due to confirmation of his alibi, it would have taken Sergeant Vaughn about five minutes to start looking for his VR suspect in Exeter. We have written evidence and direct confirmation that both Vaughn and SSO Shelby were looking at police officers as possible suspects. By the time of Ray Donahue's death in 1981, D'Angelo had been convicted of shoplifting and fired from Auburn PD. We have to assume that the real killer did not know that the evidence had been destroyed and would have been in fear of having it compared to the EAR. Maintaining Oscar's conviction kept attention off Donna, Jennifer Armour, and Exeter. That seems like a good motive for murder. So how would D'Angelo, who had just bought a house in Citrus Heights, had a pregnant wife still in law school in Sacramento, and had just killed Manuela Whitthune in Irvine, have known about the upcoming hearing on Oscar's conviction? We have an idea that is half fact and half very good theory. The day after D'Angelo's arrest, we gave Visalia PD all of the research we had on him. That included an official document that indicated that D'Angelo had been working on a construction project that was built in Tulare County between November 1980 and May 1981. 
At that time, we believed that it was obvious to everyone that the arrest of an Exeter PD sergeant as the VR, EAR, ONS would point directly to his involvement in the murders of Jennifer Armour and Donna Richmond. So we never bothered to drill down on the exact details of D'Angelo's construction work around the time of Oscar's appeal hearing. All we can say is that there's circumstantial evidence that shows that D'Angelo was in the area and available to read the newspaper stories about Oscar's upcoming hearing and Donahue's role as a critical witness. Finding people with strong motives to keep Donahue off the witness stand is easy. Figuring out how he could have been killed strays far away from fact into guesses and theories. Did anyone have an opportunity to kill Donahue? Yes, he was alone at the bar dinner, and pretty much everyone with a motive would have known where to find him. It's also possible that someone waited for him to return home and intercepted him there. Donahue had been drinking and wouldn't have been on his guard. His drink could have been drugged at the dinner, or he could have been grabbed in the parking lot by someone who offered to drive him home. Means of death is also pretty easy to imagine. Donahue's death certificate noted unspecified traumatic injuries. So any blunt force blows leading to death could easily have been blamed on a car accident. The statement from the coroner about the lack of visible injuries makes us wonder exactly what the autopsy found. It would have been incredibly easy to stage an accident at the site where Donahue's car was located. That side of the canal is owned by the local cotton company, and there is an easily accessible siding road that goes right to the spot. There are no lights, houses, businesses, or sounds there at night. It is totally flat for miles and miles, which makes it an ideal place to commit a crime. Any approaching car would be seen and heard minutes before its arrival. The coroner at the time, Moore, was a former Kings County deputy and DA investigator. He was later forced to resign as coroner after the California Department of Justice started looking into accusations that he abused his office for personal gain while handling the estates of people who died under his jurisdiction. If you want a quick finding of accidental death and the body released for cremation, it seems like it would be worth traveling to Kings County just to get Coroner Moore on the case. So, could Donahue have been killed, his car driven to the crash site, the scene staged, and had the death ruled accidental? Yes, it is totally possible. We can also imagine the same coroner agreeing to classify it as an accident, even if there was clear evidence of suicide. A simple request from the family especially someone who worked for the Tulare DA's office, likely would have been enough. Obviously, the most difficult part of this murder scenario is transportation. Either it was premeditated or a conspiracy. One person could have killed Donahue, but he would have had to lure him to the location for a meeting or have a getaway vehicle already hidden at the canal. If a lone killer grabbed Donahue at the golf club or outside his house, he would have driven Donahue's car down to the canal and departed using his own car, motorcycle, or bicycle. It's unrealistic to imagine anyone walking out from that location. That's a lot of pre-planning. Is it realistic to imagine Donahue driving to the canal for a midnight meeting? We don't know what the lure would have been, but it would have needed to be offered by someone Donahue trusted. The only other option is that one person drove Donahue's car while someone else followed in another car that they used to get home. Two people means a conspiracy, and that's a big risk. 
However, given what we've seen with Oscar's conviction, we won't take that option off the table, or even discount it. Overall, we can easily see how Oscar got focused on the idea that Donahue was murdered to keep him from testifying at the hearing that morning. Motive, means, and opportunity are all there. The least likely option seems to be the official story of accidental death. What we cannot understand is how there was no investigation into any of this. The hearing that morning was specifically to determine whether or not TCSO and the Tulare DA had intentionally hidden an eyewitness that proved Oscar's alibi. There was strong enough evidence for a judge to agree that the accusation was credible, and he wanted to hear from the witnesses. The only witness that mattered was Ray Donahue. The hearing and Oscar's entire appeal hinged solely on whether or not Donahue had heard or read Chamberlain's interview with Johnny Gerber during the trial. It didn't matter that nobody had told Oscar or that the witness had not been called. According to case law at the time, the only way for Oscar to win a new trial was if Donahue sat on the witness stand at the hearing and said that he had not known the contents of Gerber's interview. Suddenly, six hours before the hearing, the main witness was dead. Nobody at the entire hearing, not Pettyjohn, Chamberlain, Byrd, or Powell, was willing to swear on the stand that they had told Donahue about Johnny Gerber, let alone given him the TCSO report or interview. Yet the judge found that Donahue might have known. And that was enough. That was fair. That was justice. If someone might have told the defense attorney about a critical alibi witness, it was fine that the jury never heard from that witness. In fact, by the time the rescheduled hearing occurred, it was two witnesses who saw Oscar during the freezer loading, and that was still okay with the judge, because maybe it was technically allowed for a defense attorney to hide alibi witnesses from his own client in a death penalty case. Did it matter to the judge that Powell had lied to the jury and told them that nobody saw Oscar on Garden Street? No. Did it matter that Donahue had died under extremely suspicious circumstances? No. The appeal system is designed to maintain convictions at all cost, and that's exactly what happened. (laughs) 